may be seated. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Colossians. We're continuing in that book, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. We invite you to follow along. If you do not have a Bible with you, please use one of the Red Pew Bibles in front of you. Again, Colossians 2, 6 through 15. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of God. Pray with me. Our God and Father, it is you who meet with us as we gather here this morning. You who is lifted up in the prayers and praises of your people. You who hears us as we pray. And you who speaks to us through your word. I pray that your spirit might be attentive to us as we hear it. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under it. Be with me a sinner as I preach it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. It's good to be with all of you this morning. My name is Eric. I'm the pastor here at Kishwaukee. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, please say hello after the service. Um, We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Colossians, where Paul is writing to this church to remind them of the foundations of their faith and calling them to keep the first things first. I was thinking, reading this text and preparing this week, one of the questions that it seems everyone today is trying to answer is this, what makes the difference between people who succeed or fail in things like school or business or politics? Psychologists and sociologists and all these other is kind of people love to get grants and do studies on that kind of thing, and I feel like every other day on the news or you know, on Facebook or somewhere I run across some story trying to explain what makes the difference for those people. And there's lots of proposals that I've come across, ranging from some that, you know, kind of make sense, like IQ or parents' level of success or something like that, to things that don't at all, like um, I saw an article a little while back that found a correlation between business success and wearing crazy socks, like with superheroes or animals on them, which I don't think is actually probably the case. But one recent idea has kind of stuck with me. Uh, Angela Duckworth is this psychologist who pioneered the field of studying what she calls grit. Grit 
It's the name of her new book on the subject, and she defines grit as um, having passion and perseverance for long-term goals, having stamina, living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. And she's done a lot of research to back that up. In one study, for example, Duckworth created this test to measure teenagers' grit that she had them take, how likely they were to stick with things and not give up. And watching those teens over years, she found that those with more grit were more successful in school and in business and in life. And I'm not a psychologist or a sociologist, but that, unlike crazy socks, kind of makes sense to me. Just watching people around me, you know, it's not necessarily the most talented or the most sociable or the smartest people that actually end up, you know, succeeding in school and business and life. Those things are nice, sure, but I've known plenty of very talented, very sociable people who, when they're confronted with the hardships that life brings their way, just give up. The thing that makes the difference isn't what you do when you, or isn't what you have when you first confront those hardships. It's what you kind of do as you walk through them in life that seems to make the difference. And at the heart of Paul's message to the Colossians, I think, is something sort of like that, a call to have a kind of spiritual grit and stick-to-itiveness, a spiritual stamina. Chapter 2 is really the heart of this letter, and Paul is writing to this church because these false teachers have come along. People with PhDs love to argue about the specifics of what they taught, but basically what it comes down to is that they are encouraging the Colossians to give up on Jesus. Jesus was great, they're saying, as far as it goes, but he isn't enough. You need something more to your religion. These teachers are trying to add requirements and actions and ideas to the gospel, claiming that what the Colossians need is sort of this Jesus-plus approach to Christianity. And Paul is having none of that. Instead, here's his message in verse 6. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith you were taught. That he's saying you don't need to add anything to it. You don't need something different. What you need is to have the grit to stick with Jesus as your only hope. Which is something I think we all need to be reminded of. We need to stick with Jesus. To keep him at the center. It's an easy thing to say, right? We put it on bumper stickers and coffee mugs. Jesus is enough. Jesus is the answer. But it's one thing to say that and another thing to actually live it. The clearest way I see that in my own life is the way that I can so easily treat Jesus as a sort of last resort. When some problem comes along, first I think really hard about how to fix it, and then I work really hard to try to fix it, and only after all of that, if that hasn't worked, do I turn to Jesus. What Paul wants to challenge us with, though, is that Jesus should actually be our first resort. He should be the center of our hope. There are all sorts of things we might, that might lead us away from him, all sorts of things we might be tempted to add to him, that we can be tempted to adopt a Jesus-plus kind of approach to our faith. But what Paul does in our passage is show us foundational truths about Jesus and then use those truths to, to show us ways that we're tempted to turn aside. So this morning I just want us to look at how Paul pictures Jesus and the ways he uses that to challenge us. I think there's really three truths about Jesus he tries to show us that also highlight for us ways we're tempted to turn aside from him. That Jesus is God's revelation, Paul says. Jesus is God's victory. And Jesus is God's righteousness. 
God's revelation, his victory, and his righteousness. First, Jesus is God's revelation. In verse 8, Paul warns the Colossians, and he says, Don't be taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Hollow and deceptive philosophy. What's that? It isn't philosophy just in some broad way. He's not telling high school or college kids that they shouldn't read Aristotle. Nor is he warning against just kind of thinking carefully about life and the world around you, which is really all that philosophy means. Rather, it's a certain kind of philosophy. And it comes down to this comparison that he makes. The kinds of philosophies Paul's warning against, he says, are built on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. So human tradition, just kind of what people have already thought about the world, and the elemental spiritual forces, which is another of those things that commentators like to argue about, but basically just means, I think, what makes the most sense is that Paul's saying, just the stuff you get from kind of looking at the world around you and the stuff that everybody knows, right? So Paul contrasts this kind of just like, you know, what you receive in human tradition, what everyone kind of knows about the world, with thinking that centers around Jesus. In Jesus, Paul says, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. That in Jesus is God, and that in Jesus, God and we human beings somehow meet. We talk about the incarnation, right? The idea of God becoming a human being. A lot in church, especially around Christmas time. We say that Jesus was God. But just think about that for a moment, Paul's saying. Jesus is God, the one who created every square inch of the universe, the one who upholds every atom of it. He is the fullness of God, he says. That Jesus is all of that infinite, all-knowing, all-reigning God dwelling as a human being. And in Jesus, God meets with us. In Christ, Paul goes on to say in verse 10, you have been brought to fullness. That infinite creator God is suddenly accessible to us. We can read his words. We can talk to him in prayer. We can be united with him through his spirit. All of which means that any view of life in the world, any philosophy, Paul's saying, that doesn't include Jesus at the center, that doesn't keep him as the heart of everything, is always going to be incomplete. It's going to be hollow and lead you astray. That Jesus is God revealed to us. He's the fullness of God and the source of fullness for us. And without that fullness, our thinking and lives are going to feel empty. Which sounds, I guess, like a kind of abstract idea. And so we might wonder what that actually means in the world where we live. I know when people start to talk about philosophy, some of us can just kind of want to take our Sunday morning nap. But Paul isn't just talking to stuffy people professors in this passage, but to the church, to people like us, right? He isn't just saying that Jesus should be the center of the thinking about Plato and Descartes, but that he should be the center of how we all think about the world. See, our world is full of philosophies about how to live. You don't have to take some thousand-page book to learn about them. You just listen to Oprah, right? Or the newspaper editorials, or the articles on the internet, or talking to your friends over coffee at the Cardinal Cafe. Everybody has a set of ideas about living in the world and living well, about politics and relationships and work and pleasure and all of that, and almost none of those philosophies have Jesus at the center. 
And I don't just mean, yes, we all acknowledge there are philosophies that are kind of built without him at all, right? These kind of, we talk in the church about these sort of secular philosophies of our day um, and, and how they, they, they deny Jesus. What should be more worrying to us is ways of thinking that do include Jesus, but just put him at the edges of things. That's something I think we can all be guilty of. Take Take our jobs, say, for those of us that work outside of the home. Some of, um, some of us, I think, struggle to figure out where does Jesus fit into that, right? It's not that we don't think he has nothing to do with it. I think most of us get kind of some ways around the edges that maybe Jesus fits. So like, you know, Jesus teaches us that we shouldn't rob from our bosses, right? So maybe he fits into our work in that way. But I don't spend a lot of time in my daily work thinking about robbing from my boss. And maybe we think, well, we make some money at our job and we're supposed to give some percentage of it to him in tithes and offerings. And so maybe he fits that way. But all of those things are still keeping Jesus at the edge of that. The biblical way to view something like your jobs is much larger, right? Our work itself is an act of service somehow to Jesus, that you are in some sense working for him, as Paul's going to later in this letter to the Colossians actually tell them. So the way we work should be transformed by the gospel. And our jobs are places for Jesus' mission to be realized. So your relationships within it with coworkers, with customers, that those should be scented with the aroma of Christ too. And the money we make from our work belongs to Jesus. Not just some percentage that we give or tithe to a local church or to charities, but all of it, which doesn't mean that we can't enjoy it. We can but that enjoyment must be done with gratitude and obedience to God as well. So Jesus is supposed to be at the center of that. And the same thing is true of other parts of our lives. Our parenting should be centered on loving our children like Jesus and teaching them to love him. Our conversations, our opportunities to bless people with Jesus' love, our hours should be seen as gifts of God to be used in Christ's service. In Jesus is the whole fullness of the God of the universe— And so that fullness should fill up every part of our lives, too. Which can still sound a little bit big and abstract to get your head around. So let me just give you one practical suggestion this week. Try talking to Jesus about some of the parts of your day that you don't talk to him about normally. If you're you're like me, there's certain things that you kind of discuss with Jesus in prayer, right? You know, people that you know who are sick or struggling, certain kind of spiritual aspects of your life, certain stuff that you would like him to give you. But, um, But there's all these things that you don't talk about him with. So try this afternoon or, you know, when you're on break at lunch or when your kids are down napping, just talk to him about you know, the emails that you had to send today or the messes you had to pick up or the the cabinet that you built today. Talk to Jesus about the people that you're interacting with. Talk to him about your shopping list when you go to the store. When you do that, your view of those things starts to change. It's not that you sit down and figure out a philosophy of life that includes all of them, but by putting all of those different parts of your life before Jesus— you can start to hear his voice speak to you about how he wants to be the center of that part of your life too. So Jesus is God's revelation, the fullness of God made visible to us. But Paul's not just challenging us there. He also wants the Colossians to see that Jesus is God's victory. Jesus is God's victory. You start to see this in verse 10 where Paul declares that Jesus is the head over every power and authority. And that seems like it's kind of coming out of the blue, although he used that same language back in chapter 1 talking about Jesus. 
Let's talk about it for a minute before we think about what it means. That, that powers and authorities, some people take that to mean that Paul's talking about sort of political and social powers in the world. That Jesus is the king over all of the kings and nations of the world. Others take it in kind of a spiritual sense, that it's talking about Satan and his servants, the evil spiritual forces at work in the world. And there's actually really good reasons, if you look at the way Paul uses this throughout his writing, to take it both ways, because probably I think what he means is yes, all right, <laughs> that it includes both of those things. In the thinking of the Bible, the world and the powers at work in the world include both physical things you can see that oppose God's kingdom and spiritual forces that lie behind them that oppose his kingdom as well. So you can see this in how scripture talks about, say, Jesus' crucifixion, right? So, so Paul's comfortable talking about Jesus' crucifixion in terms of the Sanhedrin and the Roman governors that, that crucified Jesus, But we're also told that the devil somehow comes into Judas Iscariot and leads him to betray Jesus. And that in 2 Corinthians, Paul actually talks about how Satan himself is the one who crucified Jesus. Those things are all kind of united together. So when Paul says that Jesus is the head over all powers and authorities, what he means is that Jesus is supreme over all of that. That he's over every political and social institution in our world. And over every spiritual one as well. But that seems kind of strange. It's, in the first place, it's not like Jesus is president, right? Despite the way some people fall in love with certain presidential candidates, it's not like Jesus is in the White House, nor is it the case that, that those institutions always do what Jesus wants, right? That's true of governments and social institutions. That's obviously true of the devil. So how is Jesus head over those things? Well, Paul makes that clear in verse 15. He says that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them. He disarmed them, which gets lost in translation a little bit. What that word actually means in the Greek is that he stripped them naked. He stripped them naked, which is a more vivid image, I guess. And it fits with him saying that then there's this public spectacle because Paul's actually using this picture of this thing that would happen in his day and age to try to picture what Jesus did to these these powers and authorities. It's this, this thing called a Roman triumph, okay? A triumph was this parade that you would have in ancient Rome. And the emperor would go fight a war, and he'd come back, and what he'd do is he'd come into the city, and, you know, there'd be all the musicians and people clapping and watching, and walking behind him would be all of the princes and leaders and generals of his enemies that he had defeated, and they'd be stripped naked in chains, and they would be um, walking out behind him in this public spectacle where everyone kind of watched. And that, Paul's essentially trying to tell the Colossians is what Jesus has done to the powers and authorities of this world. How? According to verse 15, through the cross. The cross. And that might seem strange, right? Isn't the cross the place where Jesus is killed by these people? But here's what I think Paul means. What is the power that the authorities in our world have? It's the power to hurt you. Right? It's, they can t- take stuff from you, they can lock you up, they can, they can harm you physically, ultimately they can kill you. That's what they can do. And at the cross, that is exactly what they did to Jesus. They imprisoned him, they stripped him naked, and they hung him on a tree to die, and he died. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Instead, in Jesus, ultimately, God 
had the victory over all of those things that the powers could do. That they shot every arrow at Jesus and threw everything in the kitchen sink at him and that on the third day he rose again. And that now he sits on a throne in heaven, victorious over all that those powers could do. So that's a demonstration of the ultimate power that Jesus has. It's the reason that he's the head. And it's also a demonstration of the limits of the power of this world. That their grand robes have been ripped away and it's been shown that without their threat being able to ultimately destroy us, that the emperor just doesn't have any clothes. That means for you and me, if we belong to Jesus, it's quite simply that we just don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to be afraid. Not that there aren't hard things and scary things in this world. There are. Right? I don't want to suffer pain and loss. I don't want to die. But those things are not the final word for us. As Jesus himself says in Luke 12:4, Do not fear those who kill the body and then can't do anything else. In Christ, we have a security beyond the physical harm that this world's powers can do. We have eternal life in him. We have resurrection because of him. We have an everlasting inheritance of glory that the powers of this world can't take away. One of the reasons that we add things to Jesus, that we look for that Jesus plus kind of gospel, is because we don't live out of that reality. We live in a world that loves to tell us to be afraid of things. I mean, do you watch the evening news, right? Guess what's going to kill you tonight? Story at seven. Our politicians and our advertisements and the guys on talk radio, I feel like there is this constant rhythm sounding in the background of our world to be afraid of this and be afraid of this and be afraid of this. And the reason that the world tries to keep us in this state of fear It's usually because it wants to sell us something, right? Here's the information you need to be safe, the newscaster is going to say. But buy this product to be delivered, the ads tell us. Vote for me and I'll protect you, the politician promises. The world keeps us afraid because it wants to sell us things and those things are never Jesus. It's always something that it wants us to add to him. Here's the truth, right? I'm not telling you that if you're in Jesus, you're not going to experience fear. You will all the time. At least I think so, because I do. There's lots of things to be worried about. But what Jesus does offer is a true hope that is deeper than that fear. There's an irony in the way the world works. It makes us afraid of things, and then it offers us solutions to that fear. But none of those are really the solution, right? No news report can tell you how to solve your mortality. No politician can give you eternal security. No product can give you an everlasting inheritance. Instead, they just put you on this hamster wheel, right? Where you're running and behind you is the thing you're afraid of. And ahead of you is this promised deliverance that will never really arrive. But Jesus can deliver you from the hamster wheel of fear, which actually sounded a lot better in my head. But it's true. Jesus Jesus can deliver you from the hamster wheel. There's no terror in this world that Jesus has not faced and overcome. And because you belong to him, there is no terror that you cannot ultimately overcome if you are in him. 
There's nothing truly lasting that this world can do to you. In the light of the cross, ultimately all of its threats are shown to be naked and are disarmed. So Jesus is God's revelation. And Jesus is God's victory. We have to stick to Jesus in the face of philosophies that don't have him at the center. And we have to stick to Jesus in spite of fears that this world tries to sell us. But there's one more truth that Paul wants the Colossians to see. That Jesus is God's righteousness too. Jesus is God's righteousness. Look at verse 11. Here Paul starts talking about circumcision which I hope I don't have to define for anybody because I don't know that I want to do that from the pulpit. But when Paul's talking about circumcision, he isn't discussing this thing that you might or might not do to your sons when they're born, right? He's discussing something that has a specific religious significance in the world in which he lives. In the Old Testament, God gave circumcision to Abraham as a symbol marking out God's people. And that symbol was always supposed to be just a physical symbol of a spiritual reality, that they belonged to God, that God provided a sacrifice for their sins. That's why the Old Testament prophets talk about circumcising your hearts when they talk to ancient Israel, because outward act was always supposed to grow up into inward faith in God. But for the false teachers Paul's writing against, circumcision had become something more. It had become this kind of religious rite that somehow by itself earned you favor with God. And so Paul attacks that idea. And on one level, he just attacks it because he points out to the Colossians that circumcision isn't supposed to be a religious marker anymore in the New Covenant. In verse 12, that's why he starts talking about baptism, because this new symbol is given to God's people, the symbol of baptism. And now that's supposed to symbolize that God's faithfulness to us and his cleansing that he gives us for our sins. But more than that, Paul is attacking the whole idea that circumcision or any other religious ritual, can add something to the work of Jesus. Look at verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Paul says, before you had done anything, before you had started obeying, before you had stopped sinning, before any of that, God made you alive with Christ. More than that, he says that God forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. So before you had done a single good thing as a Christian, before you could claim to deserve anything, God already gave you everything. It's like Paul says you have this enormous debt because of sin. You owe this huge mortgage, and before you paid one dollar of it, Jesus paid all of it with interest. Your circumcision or your church attendance or your obedience don't factor in. Because of Jesus and Jesus alone, every one of our sins are forgiven, and every last cent of our debt is paid. The problem with these false teachers is that they wanted circumcision to earn you something, but there is nothing left to earn. Making something in the Christian life that merits something before God, that demands something from him, necessarily takes that away from what Jesus has already purchased for us. Jesus has already given it all to you, all of it. That's crucial for us to hear because it's not just stuff out there that can cause us to turn away from the centrality of Jesus. It's not just worldly things that we can add to the gospel, trying to have a Jesus-plus kind of Christianity. 
It can also, maybe even often, be religious things that take us away from Jesus. There's this way of approaching Christianity that has all sorts of religious rituals and good behaviors and upstanding morals and everything else that you could want but lacks Jesus. It makes Christianity a mere religion, a philosophy about what's right and wrong. And that sort of Christianity is socially acceptable and morally praiseworthy, but it cannot save you, and it cannot save the world. In the 1950s, a Presbyterian radio preacher named Donald Barnhouse was talking about what it might look like if Satan took over a city. And on CBS radio, he, he, he paints this picture, and I'm sure that you have a picture in your head, right, when I say, imagine Satan taking over a city, right? There's, there's blood in the streets and rioting and every imaginable kind of chaos happening. But here's how Reverend Barnhouse says that he suspects in America Satan would actually do it. He says that if Satan took control of Philadelphia, where he lived, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, the pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other, there would be no swearing, The children would say yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday, but in those churches, Jesus would never be preached. Now, I don't know if that's what would actually happen, but the truth behind it is deeply biblical. It is Paul's concern for the Colossians. It isn't that they will stop being religious. Paul isn't writing this letter because he's worried that they're going to stop doing religious things. In fact, the false teachers he's confronting are very religious people. Rather, it's that in all their religious observance, Paul's worried the Colossians would make less of Jesus. True Christianity, biblical Christianity, has every fiber of its being rooted in Jesus Christ. It's the difference between Christianity and worldly religion. Religion is about following the rules in order to get something from God. Christianity is about already having everything because of God. Which isn't to say that there isn't a place for obedience, but in Christianity, obedience is always and only the effect. It is never the cause. It's the effect of God's pleasure and love. It's never the cause. Which should challenge us, because we can fall into ways of relating with God that reflect religion rather than Christianity. We can use our obedience and our righteousness in ways that think that we deserve something, that we get to demand something from God. Lord, look at all the good things I've done. You owe me. I mean, I've had moments lately where I've done that, right? Lord, I've tried to serve you with my life. I became a pastor for goodness sake. Why does my wife have cancer? We can try to demand things from God with our righteousness. Then we can start to bargain with God. Look, God, maybe if I do this and this and this extra thing, then you'll do what I want. And all of that, that is natural and human, but it just doesn't work because our religion and our obedience are not about earning anything from God. But if God's grace challenges us in that way, it should also encourage us. It should encourage us. First, because as much as I might try to list all of those good things I've done to try to earn something from God, I know that the list of my sins is much longer. And the good news in Jesus is that those sins don't have a claim on me anymore. 
The charges have been canceled. The guilt has been nailed to the cross. And more than that, God's grace should encourage us because it tells us a truth we could never earn through worldly religion. When you try to justify yourself, when you try to perform at that kind of standard that deserves something from God, the best that you can ever be is all right. A good person on the whole. Better than the next guy. But by the cross of Christ, what you are is fully righteous. You are holy. You are perfect. You are loved. I don't know how you picture God's face when you look at you. I mean, how do you picture, you know, not that God has a face, but how do you picture that, right? Is he looking at you kind of angry and stern? Is he looking at you kind of, you know, with one eyebrow raised, waiting to see how you're going to do? I don't know how you picture God, but I know how the Bible tells us that he looks at us. It says that because of the work of Jesus, as we receive that and it covers us, he looks at us and he smiles. Not just a little smile, but a delighted grin when he looks at us. There's pleasure in his eyes. That it doesn't matter what you've done, and it doesn't matter what you're still going to do, because when God looks at you, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ. He sees his beloved child, and so you are his beloved child. So stick with Jesus, friends. Fight for him. Don't let him get pushed to the edges of your life. Don't turn your eyes from him to stare at those scary things in the world around you. Don't even spend your time looking at your righteousness and your religious effort. But look at Jesus. See in him the fullness of God revealed. See in him God's victory over all the dark powers of this world. See in him a perfect righteousness, a righteousness that he gives to you. See and savor Jesus in all things, Jesus who is in all things and over them is Lord. Pray with me this morning. Father, I thank you. For Jesus, I thank you for the great work that he has done in saving us, in triumphing over our enemies, in triumphing over our own sin. I thank you that we bear his righteousness. I thank you for the delight that you have in us. I pray now that we would just walk out in that trust, that we would never take our eyes off of him. Pray these things in the, his name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.